Now, is being colourblind on racial issues, believing race should not matter in our friendships and relationships, become its own act of racism? Well, to the black American writer and scholar Tyler Austin Harper, the answer is yes, but he's not happy about it. In an essay for The Atlantic, he says corporations are cashing in on anti-racism. He wants to return to the colourblind ideal of the civil rights era, and a recent encounter got him thinking. I was recently at an academic conference in Chicago, uh, and I got there a little early. I was meeting a friend for lunch. You know, I needed to store my bags. And while I was waiting with one other person, we struck up a conversation. She was also there for the conference, and we began just talking about our jobs and life in academia. She was sort of recounting the the hard time she's had in academia. She's had a couple of non-permanent jobs, temporary jobs, has been constantly on the job market. And then sort of abruptly in the conversation, she apologized for complaining about it and said, you know, you're the last person I should be complaining to about this. Then went on to say she knows how hard it is to be a person of color working in academia. And the thing that I think was really striking to me about it was here was a person who has had a series of temporary jobs, has not managed to find footing in a really cutthroat marketplace, which is American academia, while I had managed very fortunately to find those things. And yet in her mind, it was nonetheless worse to be a black American academic with secure employment than it is to be um, a white one with insecure employment. And her heart was clearly in the right place. I wasn't offended by the comment. I thought it was symptomatic of the cultural changes that have have gone about in the last few years. So I didn't take it personally, but it, it just struck me as a symptom of the overall oddness of American race relations in particular since George Floyd, where I think we've seen sort of new kinds of etiquette, and particularly the rise of this notion that silence is violence and that you are supposed to be clear about and straightforward about the ways in which racial difference might impact interactions between people and, and institutions and so on. Well, if her heart was in the right place, I actually think yours was too, because, I mean, in a sense, Tyler, you were making an argument in favour of class or economic security, uh, which used to be something that united people across colour boundaries, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think that's part of what's been lost in the American context in particular. Many racial disparities can't be solely explained by class. But many of them can be, or at least class is a a really important determining factor, right? African-American folks, people of color in general, are more likely to be poor for a host of historical and reasons related to institutional racism. And yet at the same time, it is also the case that many Americans of all colors struggle with poverty, job insecurity, precarity. And it just was really striking to me that the fact that I did have economic security and some of these other things that this person lacked somehow was not enough to make up in her mind for what she saw as the inherent deficiency and challenge of being a black person is so profound, right, that it overrode whatever economic challenges she had and and inherently meant that my life must be somehow more difficult and worse. Tyler, how recent is this change in attitude where race was supposed to be maybe not incidental? I'm not saying race is incidental in personal relationships, but how recent is it that it's now so central to personal relationships. 
one of the core pieces of messaging that came out of George Floyd, his horrible murder, is that there was a shift to the notion that it's not enough to simply not be a racist. One must also call out racism at all times, call out racial difference. So a key part of being an ally, as it's called, is not simply passively resisting racism, but doing so actively. And for a lot of people, that meant talking. That's where we see the flourishing on social media of all kinds of posts, white silence is violence, changing Instagram photos to black boxes to signal support with the Black Lives Matter movement. The left has long been opposed to uh, what often gets called structural or institutional racism. The idea that certain institutions like housing, banking, the police, and so on have racist outcomes. And so for a long time, the left has been opposed to colorblind policies. But after George Floyd, that really good idea that structural racism permeates American society and we need to combat it got merged with what I think is a pretty bad idea, which is that colorblindness is not only bad when it's a matter of law and policy, but it's also bad in personal relationships. And that minimizing racial difference in personal relationships, professing not to see color, that's become almost a kind of racist dog whistle at least according to certain progressives. And that's where I think things have gone off the rails. When we've moved from saying colorblind law can be problematic towards saying that colorblindness as a matter of social etiquette is problematic. Where does this attack on colorblindness leave something like interracial marriage, which I would have thought is an incredibly beautiful thing? I mean, hasn't interracial marriage been steadily increasing in the United States since the 1960s? If we're going to criticise colourblindness in interpersonal relations, where does it leave something as atavistic as love? Yeah, I know. I, I am in an interracial marriage, so this is something I think about a lot. And I think one of the effects of this attack on interpersonal colourblindness is that it's really grounded in this notion that People of different racial groups can't truly understand one another because their lived experiences are so fundamentally distinct. I think one of the effects of this way of thinking is that it makes it seem like our friends or our spouses or our acquaintances or colleagues who might come from a different identity group than us, it makes it seem that they're a world away. We can never truly understand what it's like to be them. And I think this is a really um, troubling idea. I mean, I absolutely think There are things about having another identity, whether it's being a woman or being gay, that I probably don't understand. But I think in principle, we can understand a great deal of what it would be like to be someone else. We can imagine what it would be like to walk in someone's shoes. And you may never have been stopped by the police and worried about how that encounter might go, but you can imagine what it would be like to be a black American and be pulled over and have those fears. Underlying this new assault on interpersonal colorblindness is also a kind of assault on the imagination, the idea that we can't imagine what it's like to be someone else. We can't understand what it's like to be someone else. I mean, therefore, we need all these rules and social etiquettes, et cetera, to help us relate to somebody who we assume must be fundamentally different than us. And I I think that's both a shame and troubling. Tyler, does it make you uncomfortable when white colleagues and friends try to, I think the word is, center your race? It depends on the circumstance. In a workplace, I think it can be a little different. If the way in which they're bringing up race relates in some way to 
the job you're doing. I think it can be important and totally relevant. So to give you an example, there aren't nearly as many black professors in American higher education as there are white professors. For that reason, students of color often will gravitate toward black professors for mentorship, et cetera. And that is a lot of invisible work, this job of mentoring students of color that white faculty don't have or don't have to do in the same kind of way. Things like that, where white colleagues might say, I'm aware you have a lot on your plate with some of this informal mentoring work or whatever. Can I help with X, Y, Z? That way of bringing up race as it relates to a workplace to me seems entirely sensible. But when it moves away from contexts that might be about the work or the way in which race might be an active issue in the workplace and toward more of a interpersonal social etiquette issue, that's where it can start to make me uncomfortable. The second thing I would say to you is that Black Americans are not a monolith. Some Black Americans are really comfortable, happy to, and enthusiastic to talk about race and racial issues with their white friends. Others are really not. What I'm trying to suggest, right, is not that people shouldn't talk about race with their friends. I talk about race with my friends not frequently. But what seems troubling to me about this new mode of anti-racism is that it really seems to be about centering race all the time in every circumstance. That's where it goes off the rails. And that's where for someone like me, who is not always preoccupied with thinking about race 24-7, when I have friends and acquaintances that seem to want to turn every conversation back to race, that's where it gets uncomfortable. Mm. It's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West with you. We're speaking with the American writer and scholar of English, Dr. Tyler Austin Harper, about his essay in a recent edition of The Atlantic magazine. Well, how performative can it get with people trying to be, quote, good white allies? I mean, how hard do they try? As in, do they try too hard? (laughs) Absolutely. And I think I read a lot of the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan, who had a really great definition of neurosis. And he said, people who are neurotic are constantly wondering how they should relate to others, how they should relate to their workplace, how they should relate to institutions, um, what other people want them to be and what authorities want them to do and what other people want them to do. And so they experience the world through this prism of constant anxiety about how they should behave and how they should act. And they desperately want someone to come along and just tell them, this is what you need to do. A lot of the white guilt in America is really rooted in a profound neurosis. They feel like the weight of American history is crushing. They feel complicit in these systems of racism. And they want an expert to come along and say, here's what you need to do in order to absolve your guilt and in order to make things better. Anti-racism provides those kinds of rules for etiquette. It tells people how to be an ally, how to behave, how to interact with folks of another race. I understand why that appeals to people. The race issue in America is deeply complicated. It can feel overwhelming. I imagine it particularly feels overwhelming if you're a white person trying to figure out how to navigate this world in which you feel complicit with crimes of of history. Anti-racism is really deeply neurotic in this way. You know, what you rightly point out is kind of performative allyship. The less cynical way to think about that is that these are people who are feeling really overwhelmed by guilt and, Mm -hmm. and want rules for how to make it better. And a certain kind of anti-racism provides those rules. Well, I hate to point uh, this out or to put it this way, but we are talking about America. And as you know, that is a place where money talks. Who is cashing in 
on this opposition to the colourblind ideal, the, the good colourblindness that you talk about? Who's making a quid out of opposing this? That's a great question. You know, I often say I'm a kind of soft Marxist, and I say I'm a soft Marxist because I don't believe in the revolutionary overthrow of the existing order and the installation of a sort of working class tyranny. But I'm a Marxist in the sense that I I tend to think that the ideas that dominate at a given moment in time are ideas that are favorable to the ruling class, that the kind of um, social norms that tend to reign in a place are ones that are favorable to the people in charge. Anti-racism is one of those, right? Insofar as Jeff Bezos can slap a banner on top of Amazon.com that says Black Lives Matter, and he's doing anti-racism. And yet that act of speaking out, of rejecting white silence, does precisely nothing to change Amazon's bottom line. By shifting anti-racism away from a focus on policy, law, and economic inequality to these questions of interpersonal etiquette and speaking out, that makes it such that anti-racism is basically free. Almost every major corporation in America has some kind of diversity or anti-racism statement. And they're doing those not out of the goodness of their hearts, but because it buys free goodwill while costing them precisely nothing and requiring them to change precisely nothing about what may be their predatory business practices, including predatory business practices that might disproportionately impact African-Americans. There is a whole um, realm of consultants and diversity, equity, and inclusion and anti-racist professionals whose careers are making money off of these kinds of corporate workshops and so on. But I also think the appeal of anti-racism, particularly among the American elite, is that it allows them to feel good without paying for it. That's one of the reasons, again, as somebody who's kind of a soft Marxist, I am pretty suspicious of it. I did see this very powerful point that you make in your essay where you say this dramatic swing from the civil rights era of colorblindness to corporatized anti-racism. And it does strike me that it is a lot easier for big businesses, uh, corporations in America, to make a big deal at about celebrating Black History Month, but it's a lot harder for them to pay a living wage to their employees, black and white. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Just uh, finally, Tyler, how do you build, though, in such a polarised America, but, but also, I mean, I have to say, Australia is a country with its own questions to ask and to answer about race relations. How do you build or recreate that civil rights era of good colour blindness. It requires maintaining a focus on policies and laws that do have this racialized impact on Americans. And yet at the same time, I also think it means building cross-class coalitions. You know, I come from a rural part of America that is overwhelmingly white and pretty poor. And, you know, when I was in college, I watched a lot of white friends and acquaintances from back home die in the opioid crisis, work dead-end jobs, and sort of menial labor and so on. And there are a lot of people in this country. There are a lot of poor people in this country. They're not just black and brown. They're white as well. And I think fixing some of the problems with our politics has to mean finding a way to build some of those cross-class coalitions that will help lift everybody up. And in doing so, if we focus more on class, not just on class, but more on class, we have the opportunity to, like I said, lift everybody up and and targeting economic inequality will also overwhelmingly help African-Americans as well. I don't think class and economic issues are 
a panacea. I still think that there are specific kinds of problems that are pretty um, unique or disproportionately faced by black Americans. But we need genuine intersectionality, as they call it, not the kind of performative intersectionality we currently have. And by that, I mean a focus on class, a focus on race, and then a focus on the ways in which class and race intersect in the U.S. It's been illuminating to speak with you, really. Dr. Tyler Austin Harper, he's a writer, he's a scholar of English, a professor at Bates College in the United States. We've been discussing his essay in the recent edition of The Atlantic. It has the very snappy title, I'm a black professor, you don't need to bring that up. Thank you very much for joining us on the program, Tyler. Absolutely, it's been a pleasure. And this is the Religion and Ethics Report, where you're hearing about the links between religion and the news that's shaping the world. In the Central American country of Nicaragua, the increasingly dictatorial government of Daniel Ortega has declared the Catholic order of priests, the Jesuits, to be illegal. Ortega has confiscated their property. He's targeted in particular the University of Central America, describing it as a haven for terrorism. Now, this is an extraordinary trajectory. Uh, Back in the 1980s, when Ortega ran a softer leftist government, four priests, including the Jesuit Cardinal brothers, were ministers or officials. We're going to keep an eye on that story as it unfolds. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.